podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. All right, well, we're continuing in our Luke series, and if you've been following with us uh, in Luke 6, we've come up to the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, last week I believe you got a free book um, about a portion of the Sermon on the Mount, and so thanks to Don and company for, for that gift, but here's the deal, we're skipping the Beatitudes in Luke 6, not because you got the book and that's all you need, um, but because Pastor Brady has asked me to speak on that uh, on April 3rd, the first Sunday in April on Sunday morning, and so that, I'd, I'd do the same thing and speak on that that night, and so for this week, we're going to continue in chapter 6, but it's still the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's, just ap- it's just the section right after the Beatitudes. Now, this uh, sermon, I shouldn't say Sermon on the Mount, because Luke sets this up as a sermon on the plain. He talks about Jesus uh, arriving on level ground and speaking, but it's very, there, there's a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities with the three chapters in Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 famously called the Sermon on the Mount, because in Matthew's gospel, he's sitting on this hill and uh, giving this talk. Now, I want to say this just kind of as a setup, because uh, it's important that we understand, or, or we sort of think correctly, maybe, about what to do with this sermon, whether the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. Interestingly enough, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and I'll just keep referring to it as the Sermon on the Mount, because if the Sermon on the Plain is a separate sermon, it's at least uh, got enough in common that they seem to be parts of, of, of similar sermons. Okay, so uh, maybe Jesus used the sa- one sermon twice. I don't know. Um, may it never be. But here, it's not like preachers don't do that, right? So, so here's the thing. This sermon, Sermon on the Mount, is, is maybe the most, if not the most, it certainly is up there, the most studied, the most commented, the most written about section of Scripture. Uh, throughout the church's history, and it became very, very important to them for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, when, Matthew, when Jesus, Matthew records Jesus' closing words at the end of his gospel, and he says, uh, make disciples, you know, go into all the world, make disciples of all people, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Many of us know that the word disciple simply means a student or a learner, one who uh, is learning from, a teacher. And so it makes sense that when Jesus says, make disciples, he follows it up with, teach them, teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. Well, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 sort of became this codified uh, set, this sermon that kind of expressed the core of what it is Jesus was teaching. Now, this is interesting because it seems then for the first, first few centuries of the church's life that the Sermon on the Mount became the centerpiece of what we may call discipleship training. Uh, in, in fact, if someone said, okay, I, I want to follow Jesus, I'm here, I, I, I want to learn about this, they would likely have turned to these passages or these sermons, these ideas, these talks, and said, okay, well, let me teach you how to obey what he taught us, and this is what he taught us. And then they'd proceed to recite different portions of the sermon. I say this is interesting because over the, church, the course of the church's history, the Sermon on the Mount has been used in different ways. Um, somewhere around the Reformation, and maybe a little bit after, they started to have, the, there was this attitude that kind of surfaced that said, okay, the Sermon on the Mount is a list of impossible ideals. 
Who can really live like this? Who can not even have lust in their heart? And who can not even have hatred in their heart? And how is this possible? This is just an impo- a list of impossible ideals. And so you, they would get to the, 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 the section at the end of Matthew's uh, gospel, Matthew chapter 5, verse uh, in the 20s somewhere, where he would say, okay, look, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom. And so different people over, as we got farther and further removed from this, began to say, ah, you see, this is impossible. And G- what Jesus wants is for his listeners to throw their hands up in the air and say, I can't do it. And then for him to swoop in and say, no problem, I've done it all for you. Just believe in me and we'll count it as good. Now, of course, there's parts of that that's true. It's certainly true that a person outside of Christ cannot take the Sermon on the Mount and say, oh, well, look at this wonderful code. I'm going to live this way. Uh, There's something absurd about calling Jesus a good teacher as if we could just take his teachings and just start applying it. Start trying to just apply the sermon on your own, and you will find out that it's impossible. You will say, ah, I can't do it. But is it fair to say that the only reason Jesus gives this sermon is so we can cry uncle, you know? Is it fair to say that the only reason Jesus takes the trouble to explain this new way of living is so we can say, I give up, I quit, do it for me? Is that the only reason? Or does Jesus actually envision that a group of people will live this way? And this is where maybe another stream has kind of surfaced and said, okay, look, listen now, this sermon, Jesus means it. He said, make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so come on, guys, let's get down to it, all right? And there's this sort of mentality of this is what Jesus did for us, thank you very much. This is what we must now do back for him. And no doubt some of you have heard versions of that as you've grown up in church. It's sort of a, a, some spin on the Keith Green lyric, Jesus rose from the grave and you can't even get out of bed, you know? It's, it's kind of this idea of, come on, look at all that he did, what you got, you know? And it's this, it's this response of, God's done this, so come on, meet him halfway or meet him in the middle and, and, and reciprocate what he's done for you. There are problems with that approach. First of all, I would say, the first problem with such an approach is that it's strikingly non-Trinitarian. It seems to say that God and the summary of God's activity is all in what Jesus has done. So we correctly say, look at what Jesus has done, and that's true, but we, mistake, we mistakenly think that the our part is really our doing. When the truth is, we believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus' work is finished until He returns. But God the Spirit is at work now. God the Holy Spirit is at work in us, His people. And this is where I think it's funny because even though we are, you know, quote-unquote charismatics and we believe in the Holy Spirit, we've seemed to have forgotten that the Holy Spirit is given not for ecstatic experience but for the power to actually live out this life that Christ has given us. The power to actually live out this way. So if you are to think, read through this sermon and think about Father, Son, and Spirit, we, we, we remove this, the sermon from the conversation of, well, is this about what Jesus has done for us, or is this about what we're supposed to do back for God? And you say, um, neither, actually. 
This sermon is about the Father and His gracious love to bring in the outsiders, the Son and His perfect faithfulness on our behalf, and His his sinless life and His death and His resurrection. And it's about the Spirit of God active and at work in us, the people of God, so we can live in a new way. This is the truth of it. I, I, I think there's something about church, and I alluded to this earlier, where we, we recognize that as we gather as the people of God, we are neither simply looking back and saying, hey, Jesus, thanks for that, nor are we purely looking forward and saying, come, Lord Jesus. But again, if we are going to think about our, about our faith in a way that is decidedly Trinitarian, then we're going to have to say, well, what is God doing now by His Spirit in us, in our hearts? And so the question when we open the Scriptures is not only what has Christ done, but what is God by His Spirit doing at the moment? What does He mean to change in us here and now? There's no doubt, and I want to be clear about this, there's no doubt that the sermon is not intended to be a, um, uh, a, a way of entry into the kingdom. It's not, a, uh, if, it's not a checklist that if you get these things right, then you get to be in. Uh, one of the things Luther said so well in his lectures on the Sermon on the Mount was, look, Jesus is addressing not how you get in, but how you live as the people of God. And I think that's true. Jesus is saying, look, if you want to participate with me in this kingdom life, There's a new way of living. Yes, it's not by yourself, but it is what the Spirit plans to do in us. All right? Got it? Good backdrop, good little context. Okay, here we go. uh, Luke 6, verse 27. But I say to you who are listening, love your enemies. It's a good thing we started out by pointing out that this would be impossible (laughs) without Christ because here we go, first line into it. And do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. To the person who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one as well. And and from the person who takes away your coat, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks uh, you and and do not ask for your possessions back from the person who takes them away. Treat others in the same way that you would want them to treat you. Selah, water break, (laughs) let it sink in. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to be repaid, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners so that they may be repaid in full. But love your enemies. There's that phrase again. And do good and lend, expecting nothing back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because He is kind to ungrateful and evil people. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Before we get into kind of the uh, the, the main theme of tonight's talk, and we're going to center on that first phrase, the love your enemies and praying for them and blessing them. Uh, Before we get into that, I want to just make a few comments about the other phrases uh, that we've just read because um, they can sometimes be taken in in, in funny ways. And and this, this, um, when a person slaps you on the cheek, 
the person who strikes you on the cheek, give them the other one as well. There's a couple of ways to, there's a couple, well, there's, let me say this one thing first. Uh, Jesus is talking to people who have no means of escaping an oppressive Roman regime. Uh, this is not the same as saying, aha, you see, Jesus is saying to stay in a physically abusive marriage. You know, he's talking to people who cannot get out from Roman rule. They don't have the option of fleeing or moving to another town, okay? So I, just, I think that's a necessary contextual comparison. The other thing that's interesting about this strike the other cheek, and there's a few different commentators that suggest this, uh, including the, 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 the venerable Dr. Hagner at Fuller, New Testament, I'm looking at Stephen Todd, who's a you know, Fuller grad, but uh, talking about the strike the other cheek in Matthew, where I think Matthew actually says uh, the left cheek or the right cheek. And, and here's the point. The only way for me to strike a person on their right cheek would be to give them a backhanded slap or to use my left hand. And in an Eastern culture, this is Hagner postulating here and others as well who have agreed, in an Eastern culture that would be uh, very, very degrading. It's one thing to strike a person as a punishment or as a blow. It's another thing to give them the back of your hand or to give them your left hand. It's extremely degrading. And so could turn the, the left cheek be, give them the other cheek. Say, okay, strike me if you will, but don't demean me. Don't, don't degrade me. It, it's possible that it's that. Another sort of uh, uh, twist on this is, could it be that Jesus is talking about the slap that a Jewish person would give a Jewish heretic in the synagogue? And so Jesus is anticipating that his followers are going to get the heretic slap, you know, the stop talking about this. You're, you're, you're wrong about Jesus being the Messiah, you know. Could it be that? Anyway, those are just some things to think about, and you can chew on it and do further study on it. It won't be our topic tonight. What I want to say about this passage is Jesus is in the same swoop erasing distinctions and yet creating them at the same time. What I mean by this is he's erasing distinctions because he's saying don't have a, a way that you treat your friends and then a way that you treat your enemies. He's erasing that distinction. Don't make that distinction between your friends and enemies. There ought to be an equal way, a same way, a, a loving way of treating everyone. And so he's erasing this distinction. And yet in this passage, he's creating a different kind of distinction. And the distinction he's creating is one of love. He's saying, look, the thing that sets you out, the thing that sets you apart is not that you have friends and you have enemies and you mark people that way. No, the thing that's going to set it apart is actually the way that you love. And so he's erasing and creating distinctions at the same time. But I think this text grounds us in this one, in this one sort of statement that this generous love is a love that shows that we are children of God. You recall a few weeks ago we talked about the Jewish concern with who really is, who, who are the people that really are the true people of God? Who are the ones that will inherit the age to come? We've talked a lot about this on Sunday nights. The question on their minds was not, what must I do to go to heaven? The question on their minds was, how do we inherit the age to come? When Yahweh acts, when the Messiah shows up, who's going to be shown to be His people? Who will be found as the true children of God? And Jesus is saying, it's not the ones who are vengeful and hateful and trying to take down the Romans. It's the ones who have learned to love their enemies. The response that Jesus is saying that we give in verse 27 and 28 could be broken down this way. 
The love is this internal thing. Do good. Here's a physical act. Bless. It's verbal. Pray, which is spiritual. There's something here about our response to enemies that's meant to be with our whole being. Internal, physical, verbal, spiritual. The structure even of this text is very interesting because you could kind of break it in two halves. 27 all the way down to 31 can be summarized by verse 31. And verse 31 is treat others in the same way that you would want them to treat you. But then he goes on in the next section and ends with a different summary statement. Verse 36, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. If, it were to, if we were to view this passage as almost like two verses of a poem, you would say, here's the opening thing, love your enemies, and why the closing line of that stanza is because you should treat others the way you want to be treated. And if he had just stopped there, it would have been sort of this, yeah, okay, well, that sounds kind of nice. But he goes on and he restates the point, and then he hammers home a very uh, a much more challenging conclusion. Be merciful because your Father is merciful. Jesus is building a crescendo in the sermon, and he's, he's, he moves from treat others the way you want to be treated to treat others the way your Father treats you and treats them. Just in case you think the rhythm of his sermon, this song, this poem stops with, okay, so just treat everyone the way you want to be treated. He goes on and says, oh, actually, let's take it a step further. Treat them the way your father treats them. In fact, the way your father treats you. And he grounds this in God's love, the father's own character. I was thinking about this for us tonight as we try to, by the Holy Spirit, participate in this text and say, all right, Lord, show us how we enter this. Who are we in this? And the first question I was thinking of is, who who really are our enemies? You know, um, who are our enemies? And I couldn't help but think, in a broad sense of, okay, well, maybe we have political enemies and we are at war and, you know, maybe there's that. And, and there's this question of, even with the people that we are, that we have named as our political enemies, how ought we to view them as individuals? Are they worthless, subhuman, uh, demon-filled zombies? Or are they people that we must name, and in naming them enemy, we must also say, I've got to love them. Daniel and I are in a class together uh, at Fuller Seminary. This is not a plug for Fuller, but we um, met a a woman whose husband is a doctor in the army, and she told us a remarkable story uh, about her husband serving, being deployed, and there was this, and I can't remember the exact details of which country it was, but she told us this remarkable story and obviously her husband being a believer, and, and there being a, uh, uh, an attack on their unit, on their troop, and, and there were several that were injured, and the two people that he was responsible to treat, to give treatment to, one was actually an enemy insurgent, uh, and the other was an American soldier, and here's this doctor, thankfully from a country that values some of these values, and says, we're going to treat, we're going to help 
treat, give medical treatment even to the ones we name as enemy. And it's a remarkable story of this doctor giving treatment, trying to rescue both lives, giving both lives equal value. There was something strangely beautiful to me about that. The unfortunate thing about the, sto- the way the story concluded was that it was the American soldier that died and the enemy soldier that survived. And then I thought, well, that really puts you to the test, doesn't it? So if you, it's one thing to offer both treatment, but what if one lives and the other dies? What does it mean to love even one that we have named enemy? Are there those that are enemies? Sure, sure there are. But then I was thinking, narrowing it even closer, here we have people within our culture that we name as enemies, people who are sort of against the values that we believe in and, and the things that we are trying to and rightfully trying to, I, I think, uh, influence and shape and change, and there are those that oppose that. And what sort of tone do we strike in dialogue with that? Is there a way to name a person an enemy and then yet love them? I think the interesting thing about the sermon is it doesn't ignore that there are enemies. It allows us this room to name them. Yes, that person is against everything I am for. They are an enemy, and yet Jesus is calling us to love them. But then let's bring it even closer to home. Who is your enemy? Who is the person against our life, against what we are trying to live out in faith and worship to God. And that's tough. Because uh, I think about it and I think, you know, Holly and I were talking about this. Enemies, I mean, that's kind of a strong word, you know, like we've had people hurt us. So just, I wouldn't call them an enemy. And I wonder sometimes if maybe part of our prayer involves the willingness to admit that that person has wronged me. And, and part of our prayer might be saying they are an enemy. Because the sweeping under the rug of it and saying, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And then it shows up one day in a remark that you make. It shows up in a little story you say, to well, well, did you hear about what they said? Oh, well, you didn't know. Oh, well, let me tell you. Oops. And maybe it would be better if before the Father we said, they are an enemy in the way that they have wronged me, in the way that they have hurt me, in the way that they, that, that person, that individual, the way they're going about this or that, that is very adversarial. They are like my enemy. Because then we can maybe move on and say, so Spirit of God, how do we love them? How do we bless them? How do we pray for them? I think... If identifying enemies is an important piece of this, there's two deeper things that really kind of root our response. It's a belief in God's own love for us and a belief in God's justice. I I deliberately chose the Old Testament reading tonight to be a psalm (laughs) where the psalmist is asking for his enemies to get it. Get them, get them, God, get them. And I chose it because the Psalms are wonderful prayers that allow us this room to bear our hearts before God. 
that we don't come before God pretending that the world is all fine and dandy, that no one's ever hurt us or been adversarial before us, that we say, get them, God. And if you've ever been wronged or deeply violated by someone, it's not so simple as to say, well, just love them, just pray for them, just bless them. That's insulting, isn't it? And I think the way we get to this place, part of the way we get to this place is believing in two things, believing in the love of our Father, that God, our Father, loves and is kind and is merciful. And yet, it's also this belief of saying, but God is just. What I love about so many of the psalmist's prayers for God's justice is it is an unwillingness to take justice in their own hands. And it's this appeal back. Well, you do it. I'll forgive. You do it. You act. Miroslav Volf is a theologian at Yale, and, and, and he's famously written on the subject of forgiveness. And he, he's, a lot of his growing up in early ministry years were spent witnessing firsthand the horror in, in the Balkans and the, the bloodshed and the, the, just the atrocities that took place. And he believes, his, his, one of his key thesis statements is that our own practice of non-retaliation violence is grounded in a belief in a God who has justice and vengeance. This is strange because in some ways it's like, well, Glenn, aren't we talking about like God being loving? Yes, and so we believe that God is loving, but we believe in God's justice, and that allows us to say, this is not my fight. This is not my fight. This is not mine to act and and take it back. But you know, in in saying that, we discover the most beautiful thing about the Sermon on the Mount. That the Sermon on the Mount is not just Jesus saying, here's an old way of living, here's a new way of living. Now get to it. It's not at all that. It's an old way of living and then Jesus showing how that old way of living is bound to trap you in a cycle. It's bound to trap you in a vicious cycle. Cycle, And you could break down all the different parts of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount and say, look, if we continued in this way of living, we're going to stay stuck in this cycle. And then there's always this third column. It's the part of the sermon where Jesus gives commands, gives instruction, gives verbs in the imperative, you must do this form. And oftentimes, almost consistently throughout the sermon, the imperative verbs, the verbs of the do this, come when he's saying something about breaking out of the cycle. It's a transforming initiative. As one, of the, one of the commentaries has called it this. It's a transforming initiative. It breaks you out of this cycle. Because if we were to continue in this love your friends, hate your enemies, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, then you will, in the words of the Coldplay song, cycle and recycle revenge follow death and all of his friends. Jesus says, let me show you a way that's going to break this cycle. We're not playing by these rules. We're working something transformative. It's not just, here's an old rule, here's some new rules, good luck. It's here's an old rule, and it trapped you in an impossible cycle. But look, by the power of my spirit, because of me, because of Jesus, because of what I'm doing on the cross and what I'm doing in you by the spirit, you can break out of this cycle. There's a new way of living. It's a transforming initiative. 
few weeks ago, I saw on News 5 this, in, this initiative in our own city for something that the news was calling, I don't know, maybe the people themselves were calling, restorative justice. And I don't know the details of it as a political uh, uh, plan, but it struck my interest because those are theology words. Restorative justice on News 5? What is this? And they were talking about a certain uh, local politician who was trying to suggest that when a person has wronged someone, they shouldn't just be locked up somewhere, but they should have the chance to meet the person they've wronged and do something that breaks the cycle. And then they have this mom on there who's telling the story about her son that's been killed in a car wreck because he was with a friend who was drunk. And the driver survives and the passenger doesn't. We've heard stories like this. And rather than just locking the kid up, the kid comes and serves this mom and she's weeping. And she's saying, I know this doesn't bring my son back, but there's something restorative about this. I was, it was just an unexpected story on the news. But that's more than saying, okay, well, love your friends, hate your enemies, punish those who do wrong, and lock them up. This is something that's saying, you know what? Let's break the cycle. Let's get the kid a chance to meet the, the mom who's just lost her son, and let's let them talk and cry and weep and serve, and maybe something transform, transformational can happen here. Amazing. Sounds like Jesus. But here's what's even more remarkable about this. Jesus, of course, is not one to just give us some good words and good advice and say, on your way. Jesus went on to live this out. Jesus went on to have his robe taken from him. Jesus went on to have his cheek being stricken, being hit, being bruised, his body being whipped. He went on to be nailed on this cross where you essentially die from suffocation, from your lungs collapsing. And in the final hours of hanging on this cross where every breath and every word is is, is one of excruciating pain and agony, Jesus speaks, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is Jesus not just saying, here's some good advice, go live this out. This is Jesus saying, pay attention to this sermon. You're going to remember it one day when Rome gets me. You thought your Messiah was going to be the one who kills Rome and defeats God's enemies, but instead you're going to see a Messiah who is killed by Rome and yet demonstrates the transforming love that says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Paul would pick up on this and the way he says it in Romans 5 is this, For rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. Sounds like those words we just read of Jesus saying, Look, you know, it's one thing, even the pagans are good to those who are good to them. And Paul saying, Look, for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than because we have now been declared righteous by His blood, we will be saved through Him from God's wrath. For if while we were enemies, while we were 
enemies. We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. How much more, since we have been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? Jesus lives out for us how God treats His enemies. By working to reconcile us to Him through the death of His Son. One of the most beautiful things to see about this is that this is God the Father working with the Son to bring the world back to Him. This doesn't mean that it's automatic. Of course, there's this response required, but the way Colossians in the first chapter words this out is it makes it clear that it's not God who's treating us like enemies. It is now at the moment us who are insisting on treating God like our enemy. And he's saying, come. I've forgiven. I've offered this to you. All of us tonight have to stop and say, what does it mean to be, to have been counted as an enemy? Counted as one, yes, who was living in opposition to God and counted as an enemy and yet to have God moving toward us and saying, I forgive, I love. It's not just internal. He did good. He blessed. He prayed, prays for us. Jesus doing all that he told us to do. But there's something more than that. Because if this kind of love, the God kind of love, is really transforming, then what God has done to forgive us is meant to set off something totally new inside of us and inside this community of believers we call church. If God in Christ is breaking humans out of this cycle of revenge and hatred and friends and enemies and distinctions and boundary markers and all this stuff, and if He Himself has moved toward us by His forgiving, atoning death, then by His Spirit He means for us to carry this on, to live this way, to live in this new sort of way. Impossible. True. No way I can do this, Glenn. You're right. And we will always need the forgiveness of Christ. Absolutely. We're not earning back, repaying. No way. We'll always need that forgiveness. But the power of His Spirit is at work in us. New life is breaking out in your heart. New life is bursting from inside you by the power of the Holy Spirit. That the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, lives in us. That the Spirit of the One who cried out on the cross, Father, forgive them, that Spirit is in us now. As children of God, right? Children of the Most High. What would it look like if just, just this little hodgepodge gathering on a Sunday night, what if 
the Holy Spirit really began working this out in us. Never mind like crusades and campaigns and slogans. Just, just right here. And the people that you can name as enemies. And then to say, Spirit of God, work in me so that I can love, so that I can do good, so that I can bless, so that I can pray for. To the ones that, if, and if you are living in the way of the cross, you will find yourself with more enemies as the days go on. It's going to happen. Every day you go to work, you're going to meet more people that are against your flow and against the way of following Jesus. Of course, it's going to happen. We've just finished the verses where Jesus says, blessed are you when all men revile you and insult you and reject you. They did it to all the prophets and, and they're going to do it to me too. Guess what? It's going to happen. We were talking with some of, our, some of the guys, we do a Bible study on Sunday mornings, we were talking this morning about, is it possible that we don't feel opposition from the world because we're not living in opposition to it? I think the longer we follow Jesus, we're going to find more opposition. But each opposition becomes this opportunity to say, Jesus, you've made me new. You lived this out. So by your Spirit, by your grace, empower me to be merciful just as our Father is merciful. God's goal for you and I is to grow up to be children of the Most High. Now, maybe a simpler way to say it is that we grow to look like Him. Grow to look like His Son. Grow to look like our Father. That doesn't happen by white-knuckling and trying and resolutions and it's February. We've given up on resolutions. <laughs> it's got to be the transforming work of the Spirit of God in us. Let's pray. I was thinking this week about the precious precious example of the Works family. And many of you know David and Marie Works and the daughters that they lost in our parking lot just outside here three years ago. And to see and to talk to David on a week, on an almost weekly basis, to hear how they get together with the parents of the shooter every year at the anniversary of it. This is a real family from our church living out these words. Not by their own efforts, but because the love of the Father has gotten inside them and it's changing them. And the Spirit of God is bursting out of them saying, I will love my enemies. I will bless. I will do good. I will pray. And so, Father, may you and your love continue to burst out of our hearts by your Spirit. God, thank you that while we were your enemies, you came. That Jesus, you died in our place for our sin. Thank you that you didn't continue a cycle 
revenge. Thank you that you chose to lavish love on us sinners, ones who were living as your enemies, living in many ways as you, with you as our enemy, because we opposed and were against. While we were your enemies, you died. It's only by your grace that we're here. And it's only by your grace that we can have this sort of love come bursting out of us. But Holy Spirit, we need it. Help us to think and to be willing to name in our times of prayer the ones who have become enemies, whether we've realized it or not. Make us aware of the ones that we are antagonistic and adversarial against. And then, Spirit of God, come, just as that love of Christ that's been shed abroad in our hearts, let it come breaking out, breaking out of our hearts into our words, into our prayers, into our actions, into our behavior. Lord, would you make this community of people, this congregation, make us a people that live, live out the transformation of your love in us. By your grace, by your spirit, by your work, not by our strength, not by our efforts. Come. We need you. We invite you. We ask for your help. Every day this next week, give us the strength to do this so that they will see our good works and glorify the Father in heaven for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, thank God. God bless you. Have a great week.